turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt podcast, bringing to you the best voices on the stories and issues that matter. Helping make it all possible is the generous partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy and ADF, the Alliance Defending Freedom. Here's another piece I'll trust you enjoy. But I have made it my project uh, to introduce America to Tom Holland, who is now the historian in residence of the Hugh Hewitt Show, whether he wants to be or not. Tom lives in England. He is the uh, man who's gotten me through the quarantine, because before it began, my friend Steve Thames took me aside at the last dinner party we hosted and said, you've got to read this book, Dominion, by this English fellow, Tom Holland. And I listened to it when the shutdown occurred. And then I listened to Dynasty which was about the Caesars. Then I listened to Rubicon, which was about the Roman Republic. Then I listened to um, uh, the shadow In the Shadow of the Sword, which was about the rise of Islam. And now I'm listening to Persian Fire. I'm like on a Tom Holland addiction. He joins me now from England. Good morning, Tom. How are you? I'm very well, and all the better for hearing that I've given you an addiction. Well, it's uh, your readers, by the way, of these books are terrific. Do you select them personally? My readers, yes, I do. <laughs> I have nothing but the best readers. But I mean the people who narrate the books, who actually make them into audio. Oh, I see what you mean. Oh no, I, I don't. I don't actually choose them. And to be honest, what I'd really like to do is actually read them myself. So uh, I've, 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 you know, that I share the name with the uh, the Spider Man actor. Yes, and that's kind of boosted my desire to take to the boards myself and become an actor. Well, so, uh, I quite fancy reading one of them myself. You're going to have a tough time. Now, I read them all out of order. And I always ask, I have a, a, a thing about thrillers. So Daniel Silva and C.J. Box and others come on once a year. And I always say, read their books in order. Yours don't really have to be read in order. And Dominion is the latest. But if someone wanted to do it chrono- uh, chronologically, would they not begin with Persian Fire, then move to Rubicon, then move to Dynasty, then move to In the Shadow of the Sword, and then move to Dominion? Yes, I think they probably would, um, because Persian Fire begins in um, about 600 BC. So uh, that's that's a long time ago. And then Rubicon, it tells the story of Julius Caesar, which is about 600 years later. So, uh, yes, I, th- I think that would be the wisest way to do it. Now, now, Tom Holland, explain to people where you come from. I mean, uh, popular historians like Barbara Tuckman in the United States, and, and uh, I described you yesterday as the Ron Chernow of Great Britain, uh, to a friend who said, why are you on this Holland kick? What is your background? Um, my, my background was that uh, I wanted to be a great novelist. So that was my ambition. So when I left university, I set myself to becoming a great novelist. And the, the awful truth was that I discovered that I, I was never going to be a great novelist. Um, and I began to realise that actually what, what, what gripped me, what moved me, what excited me, what thrilled me um, was actually the, the very ancient past, because that's what I'd been fascinated by as a child. And they always say, write about what you know. 
uh, and often people will go back into their past, into their childhood, into their youth to get their inspiration. And in a sense, that's what I was doing. So the, the first book I, I wrote, Rubicon, was about the fall of the Roman Republic. Um, and that was because that was the period that had always most gripped me as a child. I mean, I think it's the most extraordinary, thrilling, remarkable story possibly in the whole of history. It's got not just Julius Caesar, but Cicero and Pompey and Cleopatra and all these kind of names that still resonate to this day. And I suddenly discovered when I sat down to write that book, I, I, I felt a kind of great surge of excitement, the kind that I'd never found when I was writing fiction. And I realized this is what I actually want to do. And the thing that, that gave it a particular kind of potency for me was the fact that even though I was writing about something that happened 2000 years ago, the backdrop to when I began it was um, was 9-11 and the build up to the Iraq war, which, of course, was, you know, it was the story of an imperial republic going into the Middle East. And basically, that's what's happening in Rome in, uh, in, in, in the first century B.C. And so there was also that sense that even though this is very, very ancient history, stuff that happened thousands of years ago, it does. You know, Barbara Tuckman wrote this great book, A Distant Mirror. Yes. That there are other periods as well as, as the 14th century that hold up distant mirrors. And the, the images and the reflections, they may be distorted, they may be strange, they may be eerie, but they are kind of reflections as well. And, and so from that point on, really, I guess that's, that's, what I've, that, that's where I'm coming from. I'm interested in, in um, what might seem very distant periods to people. But I think that they, they are not without relevance for the present. And oh my I think goodness! You can see that even now. Oh my goodness! They give so much perspective, and and what I think your gift—I don't want to make you blush—but I think your gift is to use the vernacular of today with the scholarly seriousness to make them very approachable and not dusty. They are the opposite of dusty. They're engrossing. These characters in in Persian fire. Yeah, I've always known about the Spartans, and I've read the 300 by my friend Stephen Pressfield, Gates of Fire. I, I, I know the big stories. I know the great gods. I know Troy. But I haven't got it organized chronologically. And what you've set out, maybe in a Gibbon-esque sort of way, is for a 2020 reader to go back, and if they will embrace and listen to these six books, they'll actually know how we ended up me and my studio and you and yours, they will have an idea how the West got here. I don't know if you set out to do that, but you've done it. Well, I th as I think I've mentioned before, my, my interest was always the classical world. Um, so I talked about Julius Caesar, but yeah, the Spartans at Thermopylae, the Athenians at Marathon, all those kind of, I mean, they're just great, great gripping stories. And so that's what I wanted to turn to and I wanted to um, share some of the excitement and the thrills of, that I'd always got from it with with other people. So that was absolutely my ambition. Um, but the process of writing both about the Romans, and particularly the Spartans, who are completely terrifying people, was absolutely to make me think that actually the thing that often is most fascinating about these ancient peoples is not that they're like us, but that they are nothing like us at all. Um, and so that's why I ended up writing Dominion, which is a history of Christianity, and argues that um, essentially what makes us different from the Romans and the Spartans is Christianity, that we've been Christianized in all kinds of ways that we might not recognize. And then with that is what I've, I, it has been really the kind of the great discovery for me, 
of writing over the past 20 years about, about antiquity is, is not just how like us they are, but how very different they are as well. I think it's like, it's like science fiction. It's a great science fiction. The fascination of it is precisely that it's that what is familiar about these future worlds is what makes it unsettling. And what makes it unsettling is what make, can make it familiar. And I think that the same is true of, of the distant past for, for, for us today. It's the similarities and the differences that play off one another that make them so remarkable. Now, uh, last week I had on Professor N.T. Wright, whom you know, and N.T. Wright yes. gave a shout out to you as being a very serious historian. And by that, he means careful in his selection and arrangement of facts. And he has an entire chapter devoted in his new book, History and Eschatology, as to the variety of ways by which we define history. So I am curious how you uh, select and organize your facts. What's the Tom Holland work approach? Well, I think it helps that most of the periods I've written about, um, you just don't have the range of, of, of sources and incidents that we tend to have in more recent periods. So often, you know, you're, you're reading Persian Fire at the moment, which is a story about the Persian Wars, the, 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 the Persian invasion of Greece. We have, relatively speaking, we have quite a lot of information about the Greeks. So we, we, we know what the Athenians were doing. We know what the Spartans were doing to a degree. Though even there, the sources are often, you know, by by content, you know, the standards of the Second World War or something like that are incredibly scanty. But what we don't have at all is any record by the Persians. We have nothing from any Persian describing this invasion whatsoever. And so I wanted to see these wars, these invasions, from the Persian perspective as well. Um, and so, in that being so, you you have to draw on all kinds of things that might not immediately seem relevant to the story of the wars to um, to try and elucidate how the Persians saw the world. So some of the things that I found myself becoming fascinated because I thought that they showed, uh, they, they offered a kind of a glimpse into how the Persians saw the world was their attitude, say, to um, gardening, to trees, uh, to wild animals, um, to uh, they wore platform heels. All these kind of details, which in themselves are completely fascinating, are all the more so because they give us a kind of insight into the way that the Persians saw the world. And then you doesn't just become a load of baddies coming out of the East and attacking the goodies. Actually, you come to realise that, um, you know, both as, it, as is often the case in war, both, both sides think that they're in the right. And that's what makes the clash between them. In a way, so so fascinating. It's not just a military clash; it's a clash of cultures, of civilizations, of ideas, of ways of understanding the world. You know, there is also uh, to be found in the in the interplay of Persian fire and in the shadow of the sword, an introduction for a Westerner like me to Zoar Aster. Now, I there is actually a Zoroastrian uh, shrine north of Northwestern University where my daughter attended. I would drive by it and I think, you know, what the heck is Zoar Aster about? And you explain, and I know what Manichaeanism is because I've studied Augustine and I know the confessions, but I didn't know about Mani. You find it, you put it all in. Is it, is it your intention to make this, it's not comprehensive, no one can be comprehensive, but to make sure that anyone who finishes your book is at least a well-read individual on how we got here? I, I want to share things that I find fascinating with other people in the hope that they will find it fascinating too. So you're, you're absolutely right 
fits on on the figure of Zoroaster, who is probably the first great prophet. Yeah. Um, whether he actually lived or not, we can't be sure. But what is absolutely clear is that when the Persians attack Greece, for instance, they do it with the understanding that the world is divided into rival spheres of good and evil. And in subsequent generations, this comes to be associated with the name of Zoroaster. And this idea that the world, there are twin dimensions of, of light and darkness, of the truth and the lie, is hugely influential because it's not something that people in any way took for granted before that. So when the Persians attacked Greece, they, you know, the, the Greeks worship a god like Apollo. The whole point of Apollo is that he tricks you. The oracles that he gives you in his, you know, in his shrine at Delphi, even if they're telling the truth, have the semblance of lies. And you think of Athena, the, the, the patron goddess of Athens, and of course the patron goddess of, of, of Odysseus, the great trickster hero. She's perfectly capable of doing disguises and lies as well. And to the Persians, that would have been incomprehensible because the lie is something completely wrong. Truth is something absolute. And in a sense, this is an understanding that then has come to us because um, the Jews, the Jewish exiles were in Babylon. They allowed to go back to, um, to Jerusalem by the Persian kings when they conquer Babylon. And it seems pretty clear, I think, that these Persian ideas of good and evil, of, of light and darkness, have a huge influence on the Jews and thereby through the Jews on Christianity and on Islam as well. So oh, and, and, I wanted to say, in 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 listening to Persian, uh, actually, uh, uh, in the shadow of the sword, now Persian fire, I get him confused. Uh, Darius, who I've been mispronouncing his name for 64 years, uh, Darius, who is in the Old Testament, is a familiar figure only because of a relation to Cyrus, who is a very familiar figure because of Nehemiah and, and the Old Testament. You're putting them into the story in a way that the West really doesn't understand Tom Holland. I know that in the shadow of the sword might have been controversial. I don't know if Persian fire was controversial, but you're actually introducing the West to pre-Western foundations of the West. Well, I th this is what I thought was so fascinating, because, again, I, I wrote Persian fire in the aftermath of the Iraq war. And in the Iraq, you know, in the build up to Iraq war, there was a lot of discussion about America and um, Britain and the West generally as being the heirs of Greece and the values of democracy and liberty. And actually, what I think is fascinating is that the West, America, Britain, all of us, are at least as much the heirs of Persia as we are of, of, of democratic Athens. For the reasons that I was just explaining, because those Persian ideals, the idea that there is good and evil, you know, that, 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 that is exactly what Bush was talking about when he said that there is an axis of evil. This is language that, that does not echo Pericles or Socrates or anyone like that. It echoes the language of Cyrus and Darius, the kings of Persia, the kings of Iran. And so that's absolutely an example of the kind of wonderful matrix of paradoxes and ambivalences and unexpected echoes that studying ancient history and, and, and using it as a mirror held up to the present day invariably brings, invariably. And, and that's, that is what I think is, is so fascinating about it. Uh, we are a couple, the heirs of Persia as much as we are of Athens. 
This morning, I was discussing on the radio show decisions handed down on Monday by the Supreme Court, and there will be more important decisions tomorrow. On the Supreme Court, there are Lycurgus and Solon in relief. They are part of the law-giving mosaic that adorns the back of the court. Uh, And their name's familiar, I would think, to most people who at least go to law school, but they don't really know anything about Lycurgus. They don't know anything about Solon. And you make them come alive. And they're not really um, uncontroversial characters. At least Solon isn't. I mean, not in any kind of Christian framework, but they're necessary again. And you've you've done a fine service in bringing them to this era. Now, Tom Holland, what I want to ask you before before I ask you the big question about China, Millennium and your your Kings of England series, you know that the uh, the last kingdom is big in the United States right now. It's uh, based on Bernard Cornwall no- novels. It's done quite well. But it would lead me to believe that only Alfred matters and the other ones, they all kind of die off. And then we'll get to 1066 and all that. Why are you fixated on those kings? Why did you jump around a little bit? Oh, b- b- because I'm English. Um, and so I, I'm interested in, in how it is that the country I live in England came to exist. And I think there's a kind of vague assumption that, you know, England and Scotland have always existed. They've always been separate. Um, Not at all. Um, England, you know, a bit like the United Kingdom of Great Britain, England is a united kingdom of various fragments of earlier kingdoms. And so the story of how this kingdom of England emerges is a completely remarkable story. And the contrast is with your country. You know, the United States, you know who the founding fathers are. Um, you study the history of it. It's it's the great foundational moment for your country. We, in England, we tend not to know this at all. People might vaguely know about King Alfred as someone who fought the Vikings and burnt cakes, but that's yes. about it. Yes. But we know, but, but most people here do not know about Alfred's son, Edward, who conquered um, half of what would become England. They don't know about his son, Athelstan, who becomes the first king of England. And they certainly don't know who I think is the most one of the most remarkable figures in English history, the founding mother of England, a woman called Athelflad, who was the daughter of Alfred, the the sister of, of Edward, the aunt of Athelstan. And she is a great warrior who recaptured a large number of cities from the Vikings. She was a great administrator. She was a great patron of peace. She was a great patron of the economy. She founded large numbers of cities that still stand across England, a completely remarkable figure. And yet most people in England know nothing about her. But she's, you know, she is our equivalent of George Washington. And she should be better known. So that's why I write about her. She's known in the United States because of the Last Kingdom uh, series on Netflix, but but not. I'm glad to see you're getting her due. Now, here's my last big question for the week, uh, Tom Holland. Throughout all of these books there and and currently pressing on the West is this vast Middle Kingdom, which has been is not part of our legacy at all. Persia, you've proven to me, is as much, not as much perhaps as Greece, but it is part of the story. Uh, Islam is very much a part of the story of how we got here in the West to where we are today and how it's all mixed up. But that vast Middle Kingdom that Dr. Kissinger has attempted to chart in on China, is that got your eye yet? Are you aware of it? Do you care about it? Will it become part of your canon? Well, I, I, I don't speak Chinese, so I, I, I feel that it's it's beyond my ken, really. 
but but of course it is always there uh, and actually even in the reign of augustus the first um the first roman emperor uh, the poet horace talks about augustus sitting in in uh, his house on the on the on the palatine worrying about the seres and the seres are the are the chinese and so you have that sense that right you know 2000 years ago people in the west the most powerful man in the western world caesar augustus was worrying about the chinese huh. and i think that that um for everyone certainly in europe and now of course in 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 america as well china is the the the, the kind of the great counterfactual it's the yes. other great yes. empire the opposite of eurasia and in in it, so so in the in the us at the moment there's a lots of talk about decline and fall you know is america doomed to fall and the reason that we ask that is because we live in the shadow of rome you know you have a senate you have a capitol and so you have this sense oh my god all empires are doomed to fall but actually if you look at china you see that's not the case at all china has has you know there've been many many dynasties the the, the territorial integrity of the empire has collapsed has fragmented it's been conquered by barbarians it's fallen to pieces the empire itself has been replaced by a communist regime and yet recognizably contemporary china the people's republic of china is descended from that foundational kingdom of china that existed back in the time of augustus in a way that modern europe is not the heir of of the roman empire and D- so dr kissinger trump, likes trump it is, you know, Trump is, 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 is not the heir of Caesar Augustus, whereas Xi Jinping is clearly, in a sense, the heir of the state that the first emperor of China founded. And I think they, that, you know, they, that offers a, a, a fascinating contrast to our assumptions in the West. It, uh, the yellow emperor. Uh, Dr. Kissinger says their, their theory has always been that which is divided must unify and that which is unified must divide. And it's been going on for a lot longer than the West has understood things to write down. They've been writing things down a lot longer. So where does Tom Holland go next? Uh, you, you have finished Dominion. Dominion is selling very well. I think uh, people are aware of Tom Holland. You're, you are like Ron Chernow. You're breaking out all over the place. Where do you go next? You make you make me sound like the coronavirus. Yeah. Breaking out. <laughs> Every author should hope so. Yes. <laughs> well, it'd be nice to go viral, I suppose, in that sense. Um, I, I I've just finished a, a. I'm sure in the US you got you had I Claudius. I know it was a, a big influence on uh, on yes. the Sopranos and things like that. Um, and I Claudius was written by Rob Robert Graves, um, who also translated Suetonius, the um, scabrous Roman biographer of yes. the lives of the Caesars for Penguin Classics. And that came out um, about 50 years ago, so a long time. So I've, I've done a, just finished a new translation of Suetonius, and I'm in the middle of, of doing the introduction to that um, and have enjoyed that hugely. So that's been my, my lockdown activity, is tra- translating the lives of Caligula and Nero and Domitian, um, which has uh, fortunately managed to keep me busy. Well, that's high academia. I'm curious, you know, most Americans of my generation, I'm 64, we know Alistair Cook. Uh, is it Tom Holland's ambition to do that, to take your works and to go into the new platforms that are available and make them available to people who will not read or listen? Uh, yes, I'd love to do that. Um, and in a sense, the, the, the sheer range of ways of talking about this stuff is, is kind of overwhelming. 
Um, so I, at the moment, I'm concentrating on, on the translation, but I will dip in quite a lot into Twitter, which I find a kind of a, a, a very distracting source. Um, and because I've done quite a lot of radio here in England, um, I'm I'm interested in in looking at the idea of podcasts, but that is that that's something to uh, to come when I finish the Suetonius. You know, there is well, there's new media, and then there's very very ancient media, and at the moment I'm on the ancient media. Well, good luck in bridging them all. I I find you uh, to have been my my companion through the last three months, and I hope there's much much more. Tom Holland, thank you for joining me again. We will check back in with you. Uh, periodically and find out what you think about events going on because it's always anchored in events that have gone before, and I appreciate your generosity of time. I appreciate your generosity in having me. Thanks very much. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review. Our program is coming today in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. It's America's most unique graduate leadership programs offered on Pepperdine's breathtaking campus in Malibu, California. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. If you're enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend to go to Town Hall Review and sign up as well today. This is Michael Medved at michaelmedved.com for Town Hall. A little-noted detail in a new national poll raises questions on its report of a solid, steady Biden lead. The Wall Street Journal NBC News poll also asked respondents about social distancing, and 85% claimed they regularly wear masks outside the home. But anybody noting real-world habits of neighbors and strangers knows mask-wearing isn't really that universal. Yes, many respondents must be fibbing, telling pollsters what they think they want to hear. Similarly, some voters no doubt feel reluctant to inform representatives of big media companies that they're planning to vote for the president. Last time, the phenomenon of shy Trump voters contributed to notorious polling errors. That pattern may or may not repeat itself, but it's possible that many voters again prefer to mask, you should pardon the expression, an inclination to vote for Donald Trump. I'm Michael Medvey. Alliance, defending freedom, protecting religious liberty. 